0: we have been going through a series called Foundational Framework, and the idea here is that we cannot understand who Jesus Christ is unless we understand what has led up to his coming in the flesh on earth. All of history is going to culminate in a kingdom. It is not going to culminate in some Middle Eastern whack job that has a bomb. They're not going to blow things up. We're not going to all lose our minds at thermonuclear war. That's not how it happens. The Word of God has already told us how it happens. And so if that is the case, the culmination of all history is going to end in a singular kingdom. And what's interesting is it is going to be a one-world kingdom. But not like everybody's fighting and struggling for today. It is going to be a one-world kingdom that is ruled by the Son of God. When he comes back, when he takes care of any opposition, when he rules with a rod of iron, when he calls those to rule and reign alongside him, and for a thousand years, he will administer justice perfectly. Then, when a rebellion ensues because of heightened temptation, he will then judge exactly exactly, effectively, accordingly, according to truth, in perfect justice, and will then usher in what is known as the eternal state, where there will never be a problem with sin anymore. I don't know about you, but if I don't light your fire, your wood's wet this morning. Either that or you're asleep. Now what's interesting is, is God has been telling us about, the, about this from the beginning. Number one, he's given us the Bible. The Bible is his self-revelation. It's how he wants to be known. Number two, he's created. So when we simply look out and see the order in creation, we understand that there is a divine mind, a bigger mind behind all of this putting it together. What's amazing is, is how he initially created was good because it was consistent with his character. But because he also created us, and we have a responsibility unto him, our original great, 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 however long, grandparents, Adam and Eve, failed miserably at that responsibility. In doing so, they have ushered in sin and death into this world, and that death separates us from God. So, since that time, God has been charging his kingdom program forward to where he will bring it at a future time. The kingdom is not going on now. But what he has done in order to have successful inhabitants of that kingdom is he has taken those people, you and I, that have offended him, and he has put them in a position to be able to except pardon. It does away with the wrath of the Creator. That is found in one way and one way only, and that's because Jesus Christ has died, being completely sinless in Himself, but because of the sins that you and I can't help but to commit every day. Now, because we can't be good people, He made the requirement really easy. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Period. Period. God loves you, God loves me. Praise God, God loves me, right? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but has already everlasting life, life that cannot be lost. And so the call is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How many people think that qualifications are a big deal in your daily work people have to some of you own businesses when people apply for a job there do they have to be qualified are you just like this resume smells nice i think we'll hire this person they must smell nice right is that how we do it no what about for a spouse see this got real close real quick didn't it when you were dating and when you were blinded by love, were you really weighing out maybe the qualities of the person that you married? Were you? <laughs> Maxine says a big verbal yes. Where is where is your husband this morning? <laughs> yes, I did, and I can speak freely because he's not here. That's great. Where is he this morning? Uh-oh. Okay, okay, okay. I'll just make sure you're not saying it because... I'm going to ask him to listen to to it online. I don't want there to be any secrets. Okay. That's good. How about friends? Before you become friends with somebody, are you really paying attention to what they say and how they say it to see if there's any red flags? Do qualifications matter? They do. Here's the reason why. Because qualifications indicate quality. Indicate quality. And let's be honest, if it's not quality, do you really want to waste your time with it? No, you don't. I don't know if you guys noticed, something beautiful and amazing has happened right before our eyes. You probably don't even notice it. I'm going to ask everybody to do something interesting. Look up and look in the middle. Does anybody notice something different? We had these tiles that were up in the top of the ceiling that are sheetrock tiles that you put in bathrooms, because for some reason we all like it to be echoey in bathrooms. (laughs) And as I would walk down this middle aisle, my my voice would, you think my voice sounds bad just by itself? Imagine it echoing off and coming back at me. Can't play instruments very loud because it just bounces off and hits everybody. Now, there's two options here. We could have had Jeremy up on a ladder, or scaffolding. Why are you laughing? I am personally offended. Jim, that's your wife. I have a suggestion for an elder. <laughs> it's like it's going to take more elders than just me. <laughs> wow. This is a good sermon so far. All right. I could have gotten up there and done it. It wouldn't have looked like this, I can tell you that. But instead, I talked to the most skilled person I knew about making it happen. Art. (laughs) Changing out light bulbs. Changing out ceiling tiles. Why? Because I knew he was much more qualified than I am to even be standing on a ladder much less up there messing around, moving things. I don't know about you. Yeah, everybody's looking up now. He did a really great job. Praise God, all right? Quality matters. Quality matters. Yeah, I think you are. Quality matters. So when you examine the life of Jesus Christ... And there's this amazing claim that is made about him. He's the Messiah. That's a pretty tall order, is it not? From everything we've seen in the Old Testament, is it a tall order? Does he qualify? Now here's the problem. We're 2,000 years on the other side of this, aren't we? We've studied this before. We've said in Sunday school, we know this story. We know that somebody's told us, yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the Christ. By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know some people treat it like that. His middle initial is not H. There are some people that like to call him by that name, especially when you're working on cars. That is not how you use his name. Christ is his title. Christ is the Greek word Christos. It comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach that means the anointed of God. That's what it means. So there is automatically a title that is placed with Jesus whenever we say his name. There's something already tacked to it that elevates him that says, this is a person of pristine quality. The question is, is it true? So let's back up and let's get our bearings and then we'll charge forward. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This is a promise that is made to Abraham. It is the Abrahamic promise that is made to him. It's not the covenant. The covenant doesn't take place until chapter 15. But this is a promise that Yahweh God makes to Abraham, and it's important that we see this in another covenant in the Bible before we look at our passage today. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. Notice, land, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. There's the seed, right? And the next one, and I will bless you. It is blessing. And make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed so here's what you have you have a promise that is made from god to a man named abram abram was a pagan okay joshua chapter 24 verse 2 we are told that abram used to live in ur of the chaldeans which is around the realm of babylon at that time and he worshipped all kinds of false gods and then god calls him to get up and leave everything he's known, and he says, here are the three promises I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you a land, a literal earthly plot of ground. I am going to, through you, even though you are advanced in age, bring about numerous multitudes of people. And on top of that, I am going to make sure that a worldwide blessing comes through you. Now, this is later solidified in what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. This is all stuff that we've covered, so I'm trying to bring everybody up to speed to this one point. But within the Abrahamic covenant throughout Scripture, there are three more covenants that are made that are unconditional in nature. Now, let me phrase this real quick for you so you understand what it means. When we talk about that a covenant is unconditional, it means that God is stating An agreement with someone that is not based on their behavior at all. Now think what you know about Abraham. Was he a faithful guy? Did he lie in Egypt? Hey, he did. Uh, When he told him to get up and leave his family and go to the land, did he take his family with him? Oh, he did. He took his family with him. And didn't his father have to die before he was allowed to proceed forward? And when he brought his nephew Lot in, did Lot cause a lot of issues with his people and Abram's people? Man, Abraham's kind of a loser. Is he? Not any more than I am, that's for sure. (laughs) Right? But what we can't say is we can't say Abraham was absolutely faithful in everything, and that's the reason why God made these promises. No. He was a sinner, like me and like you. But the promise would still be fulfilled. Why? Because God is faithful. Because what God says he will do. So it's unconditional. Now, land, seed, blessing. There are three other covenants in the Bible that are known as sub-covenants, okay? In Deuteronomy 29 through 30, and this is all in your notes, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, you don't have to turn there, But that is an extension, an elaboration on the land element of Abraham's promise. It explains more in detail about the unconditional fulfillment of the land promise. And then later on in Jeremiah chapter 31, you have the new covenant. Now we're probably more familiar with the idea of the new covenant, right? Yes? Who's asleep? You might need coffee. Okay, stick with me, man. If I'm if I'm trying to squeeze it in time for you, then you gotta give me your eyeballs, okay? So here it is. The new covenant is the idea that will happen with Israel in the future. This is important for you to understand. And it is an extension of what the blessing will be. But there's a covenant that occurs between those two that is part of what the seed covenant is. It is a, is a greater elaboration on what it will be for the seed to come to fruition. Again, they're all unconditional covenants. So with that in mind, take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. And this, we went over it a while back, it's known as the Davidic covenant. It is the covenant that God makes with David. It is the solemn promise that is given to him, David was such a man after his own heart. God places an unconditional covenant on David's line in order to bring forth a king for this forfeited kingdom. Now remember, at the very beginning, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. Everybody remember that? And then they thought that fruit was more appeasing than pleasing God. And everything changed at that moment. Since then, we have not been able to recover this idea of the kingdom coming back to be established on earth. Domination is not possible as God had intended it. So, what happens is, in this chapter, I only want you to look at one verse. He's talking to David here, and he's speaking about the essence of his kingdom, and how Solomon's going to reign afterwards, and his kingdom's going to be great. But look at chapter 7, verse 16. It says, your house, and that is right there, your, the, the word actually is temple, uh, the, the inhabitants or the line of your people is the idea, and your kingdom, so notice the sphere of your rule or the right to rule, uh, it says here, shall endure before me, how long? Forever. If you have not marked that in your Bible, that is a click the pen and let it go kind of thing, right? Forever. When God says forever, he means forever. How do I know that I have eternal life? It is forever life. It is everlasting life. I have no reason to doubt my eternal salvation. Not because I'm always a good person, but because God's word is faithful. Well, get this. If I can't trust him here to mean what he means for forever, then I can't trust John 3.16 at all. Does that make sense? So forever's forever. Notice what it says after that. Your throne, in other words, literally where it's placed, your throne shall be established forever. These are all earthly promises. These are all eternally set in motion forever is how long they are going to endure. They are age-lasting, and they are all secured one way and one way only, and that is simply because God said it's going to be so. That's it. That's it, and that's all. So now you have not just the Abrahamic covenant of these three promises, but you have the development of this seed promise and saying, and guess what? The ruler is going to come from you. The throne is not going to pass away from you. And with that being said, we now move forward to Matthew chapter 1. Now when you get to Matthew 1 and you see what's there, let me hear your emotions. Go ahead and verbalize them out loud. No, don't. (laughs) Anybody scared? What do we got here at the beginning? A genealogy. Anybody here study genealogies? Anybody study family trees? Okay. Is it fun work? It's fun work for about half a percent of us in this room, isn't it? Sometimes in your Bible reading, let's be honest, you get to a genealogy and you're like, okay, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, uh, and you move forward. But this genealogy is packed with a lot of beautiful and brilliant things. So the question is, is Jesus qualified to be the Messiah? Notice how Matthew starts it in chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He's not pulling any punches, is he? Here he is right up front. This is who he is. He is the promised one. He is the fulfillment. He is the Savior of Israel. Watch this. Notice it says, Jesus the Messiah, and then it describes him. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Does everybody notice that chronologically speaking, those are backwards? Didn't Abraham come before David? Absolutely. Abrahamic covenant, and then much later, Davidic covenant. But notice, Matthew's whole purpose here, has anybody read through the book of Matthew lately? Anybody read through anything in there? Okay, some of us have. The whole idea that Matthew is trying to get across in his book, as he is trying to explain to a Jewish audience that Jesus Christ, in fact, is the only one who is fit to reign over the kingdom that God has promised. It is an apologetic, not that he's going around saying he's sorry for things. That's not what we mean by apologetic. The idea is it is a a defense of the credibility of who Jesus is. And what's amazing, out of all the ways he could have started, he starts way, way, way back in the Old Testament. Number one, he is the son of David. If you were a Jewish person reading this, immediately your mind would go to, son of David. The biggest thing I know about the son of David is that God made him an unconditional, everlasting promise. Immediately, Matthew is plugging in the Davidic covenant into who Jesus is. He's also the son of Abraham, which stretches back before Jews even existed. Think about that. So now he is plugging him back into the initial promise that caused a man to get up from everything he knew and rejecting all the gods that had consumed his attention and setting up a caravan and traveling to a place where he didn't even know. Does anybody vacation like that? No. Where are we going on vacation? Eh. Wherever the Lord leads. Sounds like we might end up in a ditch. Unless he really told you where to go. You see what I'm saying? So notice, this isn't just some kind of like, oh, just waxing eloquent here. That's not what it is at all. He's got a methodical meaning for why he's setting up who Jesus is. So let's let's look at this real quick. Let's read through this genealogy, and then we'll back up. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And if you want to put this real quick in your Bible, <clears throat> there's another genealogy located in Luke chapter 3. If you want to write this word out, Admin, A-D-I-N, uh, sorry, A-D-M-I-N, if you want to write that next to Ram's name, it's because in that genealogy in Luke 3, that's the name that he is called under through that. So if you want to write down Luke three thirty three, real easy to remember, right? Luke three thirty three. that's it. Uh, just in case you're comparing the two and wondering, well, how come they're not matching up here in some way? It says here, verse 4, Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, who? The king. Just in case you didn't get what he was trying to press home when he first brought David up, Let's make sure that you don't forget it as we go along here. Now, here's what's interesting. There are 14 generational mentions here between verse 2 and verse 6. And the reason why this is, let me tell you this up front. Matthew, for one reason or another, does not include every element filed in to who existed in this time. He is bringing out this 14 of perfect elements, uh, and here's the reason why. This shows us between 2 and 6 is the rise of the Jewish line. They started out as nothing. They started out as non-existent. All they had was a promise of God that stretched over them. And then God caused them to flourish up so much that they went from the time of Abraham to actually having a king who dominated an earthly kingdom in that time. Does everybody see how incredible that is? You're nobody and then you're everything. Everybody see that? Okay. Okay, Do I need to turn this into a hellfire and brimstone sermon? Pound the pulpit? That's what it is. I need to go up here. (laughs) Okay. Now that I can see you better. So now moving on. Look at the next part of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. Now here's something interesting. In the original translation of this, Bathsheba's name is not in there. In fact, all it says is her of Uriah. That sin was not let go. That sin was not, you know, that was a mark on David's character that stood with him forever. Was it forgiven? Absolutely. But as far as its prominence that was repeated throughout history of how tragic it was, there it is marked. Her name is not there, but the fact that she was married to someone else when this, and forgive the crassness of it, transaction took place, is very much put up in front of the face of the reader. Verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah, which by the way, Josiah was one of the last righteous kings that they had at that time. He was like the last glimmering hope. He actually went further than Solomon did and came in and started tearing down all the high places and all the pagan places for idolatry and worship. He tore them all to the ground. It was an incredible revival for the people at that time. But the problem is, he actually had a son after that whose name was Jehoiakim, who is not mentioned in this genealogy, who was exceedingly evil and went right back to the way that things had been. But Jehoiakim's son, look at verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah, we're going to deal with him in just a minute, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So from the time of David the king until they were deported to Babylon, you have 14 listed as well. And the reason is is because this deals with the decline of the Jewish line. Here's what else is interesting about these. Every one of these people mentioned here are kings. Every one of them. Every one of them for somebody who was Jewish and would have been reading at this time would have immediately thought, "Yeah, we know about the history of that guy. We know about the history of him. We know about what he did during his reign." So notice this idea of a succession of kings is also set up for the credibility of who Jesus is. Verse 12, after the deportation, sorry, sorry, the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of she, she A T L. I don't know how to say that. She ate. Thank you. Uh, to, I'm just going to pause and you say it, okay? And there you go. The father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and a the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of a You're like, how can he say all the rest of these and not that one? I don't accent Kentucky. Whatever. So <clears throat> Verse 14, Azor was the father of Zadok and Zadok the father of Achim and Achim the father of Eluid and Eluid the father of Eliezer and Eliezer the father of Mathan and Mathan the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So, notice the explanation here, 17, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now in Luke chapter 3, we're not going to turn there, but you have a genealogy that is given that is from Mary's line. And we're going to explain that here in just a minute. But there are three prominent things that stick out about this genealogy. Number one, so you knew I couldn't stay up there. Number one, The mention of women. That was unheard of at that time. Usually it was just a trickling down the pipe of whoever had sired the next race of who the male is. But Matthew picks ladies. And he doesn't just pick any lady, he picks some racy gals. Have you noticed that? Woo! He doesn't do a button up here. It's getting warm, some of these girls. Look at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Anybody want to know how those kids got here? Tamar was actually married to Judah's oldest child. Judah, or sorry, Judah's oldest child died. He was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord disciplined him with death. At that time, in the culture, the idea was, well, If you have another brother that's in the line, you are to then marry your dead brother's wife and therefore perpetuate his seed in the name of your brother. But he decided to act wickedly too, and so the Lord dealt with him. Done. Dead. Now, the problem was is that the next one was like in fifth grade. That ain't going to work out. Maury Povich doesn't even take those kind of entries, Okay. (laughs) see I caught what some of you watched during the day but anyway moving on and Tom was the first one laughing the loudest so that's all I need to know about him (laughs) praise the Lord but so he said wait well she waited and she waited and she waited and she waited and she's like this kid has a master's in biology now why in the world am I still waiting here why are we not married yet and having kids and so she dresses herself up as a prostitute seems like a reasonable option And she waits for her father-in-law and seduces him and gets pregnant by him. These are the days of our lives, right? And when Judah is in a rage, when he hears about the fact that she had gotten pregnant and she wasn't married and wants to have her killed, she simply sends a few articles of his back to him to let him know who the father is. Humbling, isn't it? It's, it's interesting, but in a weird way, she was actually more faithful to what should have been happening than he was. Very odd. Can't make sense of it, probably. And don't want to pretend like we can. But probably not somebody who is the moral model in order to raise our daughters after, would you agree? Probably not. Yet, where's she at? Book of Matthew, chapter one. Want to explain to you how Jesus got here. Interesting. How about the next lady? Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was a harlot. Also known as a what? Prostitute. What is up with these girls? I'm gonna dress up like a prostitute. Well, I'm gonna do one better. I'm gonna be a prostitute. Tamar was a gentile. Rahab is a gentile. What what city was she in? Everybody remember? Jericho, and she hid the spies. She, I've, we've heard about your God. He completely destroyed Egypt. And so therefore, we're, I'm going to help you. Only rescue my house, please, in exchange for that. She believed in God. She's actually mentioned in James chapter 2 as somebody who exercised their faith. They lived by faith. Incredible. Incredible. And here she is, a Canaanite Gentile prostitute. That's the way she made her living. And where do we find her? Matthew chapter one. Trying to explain about how Jesus got here. How about the next lady? We like her a little bit more, right? Because these are the only books that, that women are allowed to study, right? Ruth and uh, what's the other one you girls study all the time? Well, Esther, yeah, that's all you girls can study. Can't say anything else. That's how it is. Hey, I didn't make that up. That seems to be what Christian books are pressing on me. Okay, so anyway, moving on. Anyway, Ruth, it's a joke. Everybody calm down, Okay. <laughs> But Ruth is also a Gentile. She was a widow. But she remained faithful to Naomi, didn't she? She didn't have any lineage to come from. The next thing you know, she finds affection in a man named Boaz. And by doing so, look how it travels from that. It says here, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Sounds like some good stuff came out of a rather tragic situation. Where do you find her? Matthew chapter 1, explaining to us how Jesus got here. Now we move into Bathsheba. We're... Come on now. Cell phone's out. Or six Hail Marys to get out of that, okay? Moving on. We can joke like that. Don't even play. All right. You guys are fun. Some of you visitors are never coming back. We love you. We love you. We want you to have a Bible. I mean, for real. Come talk to me afterwards. Chastise me in private, please. I can take it. All right. But Bathsheba's name isn't even mentioned in here. The emphasis is on the fact that she was another man's wife. And here's the thing. Can you believe? I mean, think about it. Doesn't the Scripture... Capture David. He is a man after my own heart. Men, don't you desire to be like that? All I care about is the Lord. Isn't he the one who wrote? He meditates on his law day and night. How blessed is that man? I mean, he's responsible for explaining the emotional overflow of what it is to have an intimate relationship with the Creator of all things. And I tell you what, there is something so deep in my heart that longs to be like that over and over every day when I'm failing. And then I see what he did, and you think, what are you doing? Was your relationship with the Lord not closer than that? See, it's real easy for us to look back and kind of backhand him in history, isn't it? You know what David was? A sinner like you and me. Someone who needed God every day. Someone for who for get this people, someone for a short amount of time got his eyes off of what God had said. And you can be guaranteed when that happens, Satan will get you to look somewhere else. That's all he wants. Just get your eyes off of him for a second. That's all I need because of how feeble you are as a human. That's all he needs from us, guys. Just one second so he can take us down a path we never wanted to be. Yet here she is in the midst of this genealogy. Anybody know the last lady mentioned in here? Mary. Now you say, wait a second. All these other girls were Gentiles. Mary's a Jew. She's okay. She's young, wasn't she? Scripture goes on and on about how she was a virgin. Very important. But let me ask you a question: When you're telling everybody you're a virgin and you end up pregnant, what's that look like on Facebook? It looks real difficult, doesn't it? Mm mm. Girl, she'd be lying. She'd be lying. That's what we hear. Something's not adding up. Well, you don't understand. She's conceived of the Holy Spirit. And think about Joseph's situation here for a second. He had planned on divorcing her quietly. Man, you talk about somebody that's full of compassion, but probably really torn up in heart at that moment. He's going to divorce her quietly, hoping that nothing would happen in that situation because he knew. If she's found out, she'll get killed. Pretty serious situation. Life-threatening at this moment, okay? Okay. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, no, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Okay, God, I'll stick with her. Can you imagine the ridicule he got for sticking with her in that time? That is peer pressure like we can't even understand today. It's deep. It's hard. It's a hard time. In fact, if we were looking at it from a purely earthly perspective of just the facts given to us, we would say, you know what? I don't know that Mary is the the moral model that we would want our women to, to go after as well. Even though she did nothing wrong, it's just our perception of the sin that's not even really there. Amazing. This whole idea of discrimination that we have in a lot of situations, notice that God doesn't care about that. He has these five ladies included in here in order to prove an amazing point. Doesn't matter all the flaws and mess ups of people, it does not stop the fact that the Messiah has come. Here's the second interesting point here uncompromised justice. Just because God makes a promise does not mean that he is lax on his requirements. Or some people want to do this. Well, we just need to act in grace to everybody, and so therefore grace excuses all kinds of sin in people's lives. That's not grace. That's actually called license. That's not grace. There's a man that I've pointed out to you here, verse 11. Josiah, the one who brought all of the amazing reforms when he read the word of God or heard the law of God read out loud, <clears throat> became the father of Jeconiah. Jeconiah has a lot of different names. If you've got a King James Version, it probably says Jonias, something like that. His name in the scriptures is also Coniah, which is interesting. And also, Jehoiakim is his name. Is it Jehoiakim? Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is his name. Forgive me. This is a very interesting situation. Take your Bibles for a second, turn with me to Second Kings, chapter twenty four. I'm still on time. Ridicule and all, I'm still on time. Lord sees my heart. Second Kings twenty four. Well, Josiah was the one who brought the reforms. Josiah's son's name was Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim's son is Jehoiachin, or what we see here, Jeconiah. The, the Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and Jeconiah are both the same person. It's the same name, okay? So, 2 Kings chapter 24. I want you to look down. Uh, let's start in verse 6 just to get a running go at it. I'm sorry, bitch. So, Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. The king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Babylon was the dominating power at that time. And Jehoiachin, there he is, was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months. That's how long he lasted. Three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. Verse 9, mark it well. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his father had done. However evil his father was, that was as evil as Jehoiachin was, as Jeconiah was. Now, turn over to verse 15. Look at that. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land he led away to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now turn over to Jeremiah 22. And this is the prophet Jeremiah pronouncing a curse upon Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, whatever you want to call him, before these events happens because of his rampant evil. Jeremiah 22 Because it's amazing that this this seedy of a character is found in the genealogy of Jesus as well. So that's why I want to show you this. Jeremiah 22, look at 24. As I live, declares Yahweh, even though Coniah, now notice there, there's another name that he's called by, Jeconiah, Coniah, Jehoiachin, it's all the same person. Even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. It's like you taking off your wedding ring and chucking it out the window is the idea that God wants to communicate here. He says, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those who... Whom you dread, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return. And notice you've got this uh, 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 um, quotation marks that pop up. It's like a a pronouncement that goes on. Is this man Coniah despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? And we know the answer from that from what we saw because he's so stinking evil. That's the reason why. That's the justification for God's judgment on the situation. Now watch what happens here, verse 29. Oh, land, land, land. Stop. Is the land got a promise to it? It does. So notice, when you're reading through, you would automatically think, okay, wait a second. There is a promise of the land for Abraham's descendants to be there, to inherit it, to dwell there, to grow there, and eventually the kingdom is going to be set up there. So notice this whole idea, land, land, land. Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, write this man down childless a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Put on the brakes. Did we not just read in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 about the kingdom and the throne and the house being everlasting? Yes? And didn't Second Samuel occur before Jeremiah? At least if you open up your table of contents, it does, right? Right? Some of you are like, dude, I don't know. Yes! Does everybody realize what God just said because of the extensive evil of Jeconiah? Look what it says. Read 30 with me again. Thus says Yahweh, Write this man down childless, uh, God, excuse me, There's supposed to be someone on this throne forever. Of David's kingdom, there will be no end. Isn't his house supposed to be perpetual because of your unconditional promise? I mean, unless I read it wrong, a man who will not prosper in his days. Okay, so he's not going to do well. I can buy that, God. For no man of his descendants will prosper. Okay, his kids are going to have a hard time because he's a schmuck. We get it. Sitting on the throne of David or ruling again or ruling again in Judah. You know what this tells you? Go back to Matthew 1. Look at it. Matthew 1. Verse 11. Everybody see the name Jeconiah? Okay. Travel your finger all the way down. Notice. Notice. Sheatiel, what I couldn't say, whatever it is, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eluid, Eliezer, Mathan, Jacob. And who came from Jacob? Joseph. You realize none of those people can be king. God made a promise that, David, of your house, there's going to be a king. And then all of a sudden, this seemingly contradictory judgment comes in because of the extensive evil of Jeconiah, and God says, no more. No more kings. You have been so evil, I have robbed the throne from you. None of your descendants will sit on this throne. Cut off. That's why this last area here, from the deportation. He was the king at the time they were deported into Babylon from that time until the time that we see Joseph's name popped up. Why is that important? Because it is the fall of the Jewish king line. That's the reason why. It's, it's, it's I don't know how to describe it. Done. Does everybody see why this would be a problem? Makes you wonder why some atheists haven't grabbed this and tried to use it against us, right? See right here? God told a lie contradiction in the scriptures ha ha is it (laughs) wow the nose were weak i love it because i've got you right here that's good notice that god's promise does not stop god's justice it doesn't mean that he overlooks sin he still will spank he has no problem a third interesting thing you see here is the display of God's sovereignty bringing the promise to happen through Mary. Everybody see Mary's name down here at the bottom? Everybody see 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. The husband, watch this, the husband of Mary, look what it says, by whom Jesus was born. Did you notice up at the top, it was Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, or you might have a a, a Bible that has the begotts. Begats, begats, right? B-A-G-A-T-S. Try using that this week when you're talking to people, right? I begats me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Hmm, that's weird. But think about it. All those are active, aren't they? Begats, begats. They had this child. They had this child. It's all active verbs that are being pushed out here. Does everybody notice that the verb tense changes to the passive when Mary steps into the picture? Why is this? Look at it. Read it again. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice the verb tense. By whom? Notice it's passive. By whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The virgin birth. Significant for two reasons. In fact, you know what? You might be sitting here right now thinking, you know what? I know that I'm supposed to believe in the virgin birth. I don't get it. I don't grab it. I'm not fully 150% leaning into the virgin birth. This small little peasant Jewish girl, an angel appeared to her and let her know, you're going to have a son. How is this possible? Because I've never known a man. Holy Spirit's going to do it. Mm, That looks good on the National Enquirer front page. But I'm not really knowing about you messing with my life in this necessarily. Why is the virgin birth significant? Well, number one, here's the interesting thing about it. If Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit into the womb of Mary, he can therefore take on flesh and be born as a child, but the sin nature is not passed from the man to the child. Why does my son act the way he does? It's humbling because it's my fault. I'm like, good grief, he's such a sinner and... So am I, right? It's a conclusion you come to. Because when you put that along, you're not just passing along to have a child, you're passing along sin. That is part of the curse that we are seeking redemption from. I sin. Yes, you do. And me too. And guess what? A lot of instances, we can't help it. We just sin because we just sin because we haven't been renewed in the mind to think according to what reality really is in God's word. This saved Jesus from having a sin nature. But here's what else it also does. I have the mic. You're stealing thunder is what you're doing. See, Jim even moved himself out into the fort. Jim's on security duty right now. But I'm sure they've heard Roxanne. He'd be like, oh. <laughs> He's back there down in coffee now. <laughs> no, but, <clears throat> but here's the other thing. Not only does it keep Jesus from having the sin nature, but get this. Did God promise an everlasting kingdom? Did he promise an everlasting throne? Is it literal in nature? Is it not just, and he's going to kind of spiritually. No, it's real. It's really going to happen. But does the promise of God ever keep him from disciplining sin? If he didn't take care of disciplining rampant sin, he could not be God. Get this. His character is really in the tension here. It's really in the balance of how do you rectify this? You rectify it by the way that God is able to orchestrate generations. And so what you find is in Luke chapter 3. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 23. That's all we need right there. Keep your Bibles open, though. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Notice it's another genealogy. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, notice that he was thought to be is the idea, The son of Joseph, yes? Literal or adopted? Adopted. Keep that in mind. Notice this. The son of Eli, or Eli, however you want to say it. Now stop for a second. Was that the name that was used in Matthew? No. Joseph's dad was named what? Do we remember? Jacob. So you have in Matthew, Joseph's dad is Jacob. You have here... Joseph's dad is Eli or Eli. How in the world do you make sense of this? Here's the reason why. It's because Luke's genealogy is actually Mary's line. Everybody got your notes? Turn over your notes to the very last page. You have a chart. Ooh, I love this chart. It's like barbecue on my fingers. Just, (laughs) I love it. It's great. Because here's what you see. Here's what you see through it. If you notice at the top, you have Adam. And notice that it goes all the way down through here until you get to Judah. Then you round the corner here to Perez. You travel on down to get to Jesse, and then you hit David. And then at David, something very interesting takes place. Second Chronicles chapter three verse five: Bathsheba, who is Bathsheba, his one of his wives, has four children. One of which is Solomon, with whom the next king, who is the succession of the throne, takes place. And we know about Solomon being wise and his reign that happens. But one person that we don't pay much attention to is a guy named Nathan. Notice over here on this side, Nathan. And if you notice, if we're keeping with the groups of 14s that we're dealing with here, we have this divided up here, but it ends in the line of Joseph. In other words, Whenever they came together, Joseph and Mary, and they were actually married at that time, Jesus is adopted in as Joseph's child. But it wasn't from his seed. Why? So that he wouldn't inherit sin, and so that he also would be rendered ineffective of being able to sit on the throne of David. If he were Joseph's child, it wouldn't just be sin that's the problem, it's the detriment of the promise of discipline against Jehoiachin. Does that make sense? So instead in doing that, what happens is, is while the kingly right follows through Joseph as, if you look at the records, who is to be the rightful king of Israel? Well, it falls through this line, but the royal bloodline follows all throughout all of these men and ends up in Mary. How did the royal blood get in Jesus? Because when she was impregnated, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she brings forth a child, that blood is transferred and passed on, giving him royal blood running through his veins, still in line with David, still in line with the promise of Abraham, and yet having full, unadulterated rights to the throne. Look back at verse, sorry, chapter 1. Verse 31, this is where we'll finish. <clears throat> Behold. Sorry, chapter 131, I'll, I'll give you a chance to get there. Luke 1, 31. Yeah, you're still in Luke. Are you still in Luke? You went back? Aw, oh, come back and join me where I'm at. I'm in Luke 1, where are you at? Everybody just pick a 131 somewhere in the Bible. Let's all read it together, see how it sounds. Luke 131. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. That's what Jesus' name really is, Yeshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. It says here, he will be great and will be called the Son of God. Of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, sorry, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Is God amazing or what? God can still satisfy His justice. He can still deal truthfully with people and he can still keep promises over generations of generations of generations. He can take a tarnished family tree and bring the most beautiful fruit from it. I don't know about you, but man, that hits home. That's our God. That's how much God wanted to prove to you and I Jesus is qualified, not just to save you, but also to reign as the king of the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have given Jesus, and you have set up generation upon generation, and you have orchestrated your handiwork throughout their lives. You have not excused sin, but you have also not waffled on any of your promises. You are faithful. You are true to the truest sense. You have proved yourself over and over and over again. And your word records pages and pages and pages of your faithfulness. Father, 2,000 years on the other side of the birth of Jesus Christ, we are a privileged people to know what we know, to have what we have, a beautiful message about a God who didn't feel a need to discriminate, who is uncompromising in justice but is also sovereign over existence. Thank you, Father. May we be in awe of your handiwork and may we praise you for your goodness in history. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand in